so I've not had this before. <laughs> it is so good Thank to you. have you, man. Was I, was I supposed to disappear in this? <laughs> You've just got to be this careful. This is low down. Where it, have you got these from? It kind of swallows you up a little bit. This is better than Starbucks right here. So in 20 minutes' time, I'll have gone, won't I? Possibly, Somewhere through yeah. a gap in the floor. Okay. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Um, honestly, I, I, what I've just said I'm is... I'm just going to hold on to this bit because <laughs> I fear I'm going to disappear. I can just see your head. <laughs> it's okay because, like, if we just see your head peering out from the back of the couch... It'll be like this by the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you're going to be made to feel at home and welcome anyway. So this is like, you want to kick off your shoes and just kind of make yourself feel relaxed. We're totally up for that, you know. Um, but really, honestly, Simon, it's so great to have you with us tonight. And um, in all honesty, like, I, I just want to learn from you because, you know. No pressure. No, no pressure. But the thing is, is I have heard that you're a Norwich football fan and I'm quite disappointed about that. Um, I'm supporting my local team. I'm yeah. from, I'm from <laughs> Norfolk. When I was growing up in the 70s, all my Norfolk mates wore Liverpool shirts. The old, the old yellow away top, the crown paints written on paints, it. Yeah. When we had a good run in the early 90s, when we, uh, we beat Bayern Munich okay, in the UEFA the Cup, day. they suddenly all became Norwich fans. But I believe in sticking by your local team, so that's why I'm a Norwich fan. Well, good on you. Don't dig to, me out. I've got to be honest, I really appreciate our recent trips to Norwich because I remember Luis Suarez oh, had a couple go of there. good games there, actually. <laughs> Several goals in a matter of minutes. He was like so. a kid in a sweetie shop. Yeah. He's got about 10 goals every time. He was robbing you blind. Great memories for us Scouse boys, it really is. But um, who do you think is going to win the Premier League this year? Well, a man seed has beaten Arsenal 3-1, I think, haven't they? Yeah. Do you know what? I, I, listen, I would love to see Liverpool win again. Sorry if there's any blues in here. Um, it would be nice to see them win the Premier League at last. I just, the only thing I just hope is that... The Gerard slip season, the emotions that surrounded those you final went few there? games. Like sorry, that, like we're sorry. We're not even friends yet. You went there that Just early. Just don't get carried away. But I, I genuinely hope you do it. I genuinely do. I've always had a soft spot for Liverpool, but I just couldn't support them. I believed that I had to stick by the Canaries. Okay, well, we'll all be in deep, devout prayer to change that maybe at some point for you. Do you think God favours a football team? <laughs> Liverpool, obviously. Well, I'll tell you at the end of the season, right? <laughs> um, you know, putting all kind of like jokes aside, it's true. I grew up actually um, just watching you on Sky Sports News and then later as you transferred into doing the whole coverage on the Premier League. And You're not stuff. that young, are you? Well, the reality of it is, is I probably had a misspent youth where I just <laughs> ploughed my entire life into sports and that made me feel better about myself. But um, it is, it's just great to have you here with us. Thank you so much for making the trip. Um, I appreciate that coming to Liverpool is probably the highlight of your year right now. And um, But seriously, it's so awesome to just... Um, to have you with us this evening and you know we are your extended church family I know that you are a you're a Christian guy a man of faith and um, it really is an honor that you've given us a window of your time and we appreciate that whilst you're here with us that someone else is minding Ethan your your nine-year-old boy and we're just grateful for even him kind of letting dad come for a couple of hours and do his thing as well so we're really really delighted that you're with us no it's a pleasure and the welcome has been amazing thank you you know um Perhaps outside of the things that maybe you'd be most uh, well-known for, uh, broadcasting, TV and sports, Blue Peter, that whole thing, perhaps not everybody would be aware of um, the journey that your life has taken in recent years. And obviously, it probably feels to you like an awful lot of, has changed quite drastically over a relatively short period of time. But... You know, I would love it if you would just be willing to kind of share a little bit about your story, what's been happening, what has happened um, over the last couple of years in the, the Thomas household. Well, it was interesting arriving in Liverpool earlier because I, I've come here plenty of times uh, to cover both Liverpool and Everton. But as I drove into the city, uh, I could see the cathedral and some of the familiar landmarks that I've seen many, many times. And there was a real mix of emotions as I drove in because the last time I was here was 15, 16 months ago. I was covering Liverpool against Manchester United on the Saturday lunchtime. It had a monumental build-up, including me and Jamie Carragher in a helicopter, Gary Neville on a barge. And it finished nil-nil. Classic Mourinho killed the whole spectacle. And it was awful. That sounds like a bad boys' night out. Yeah, right there. it was not good. But it was the last time I was here. And at that point, 
um, this depression and anxiety that I was going through was beginning to reach fever pitch. And the whole period of time around that match was very, very, very difficult. And somehow I got on air and did it. And as I drove back into the city tonight, all the memories of that day came back. And then the final game I ever presented for Sky, which was United against Tottenham just a couple of weeks later, and the panic attacks I'd had at Old Trafford and somehow got on air. And then obviously I reflected on what had happened to us as a family. And I thought, this has been an unbelievable, horrible, forgettable, but unforgettable 15 months. And I just thought, my goodness me, the last time I was here, how much in just 15 months has life changed? And if someone had said to me in 15 months' time, you'd be coming back to this church to tell this story, I'd have both been scared at the prospect of that, actually more than scared, frightened beyond belief, but I'd also laughed in their face. Not possible that could happen. Because as I came off work with anxiety and depression, that just became totally debilitizing. I just couldn't do my job anymore. Um, my wife, Gemma, I'd been married to Gemma for nearly 13 years. We've got a nine-year-old. He was eight at the time, uh, boy Ethan. Um, Gemma just started having these headaches. And as we went to the doctors together, I'd said to her quite a few times, I think you should see the doctors. Women are just better than men at being ill, but sometimes to their detriment because they need to go and get help, but they're driving on with family life that they don't. And she didn't, but eventually we went in together on a Wednesday. And the doctor, having spoken to me about medication for my depression, talked about Gemma and felt that the stress she had because of me, she was frightened. I was that I wasn't able to get to work anymore, was having a detrimental effect on her health. But over the course of the next two days, her health begins to deteriorate. She becomes very fatigued. We're back in the doctor's on the Friday. He checked her over. He said, I've checked all her vital signs. I'm satisfied there's nothing wrong with her. By the Monday, having had a really bad weekend with her. She's back in again. Uh, and to cut a long story short, by the Monday night, we are in the Royal Barks Hospital in Reading. And a doctor is uttering the words, which I'll never forget, which is, I'm really sorry to say, your blood is deranged. And by the evening of the next day, we're in uh, a specialist ward in Oxford, in the Churchill Hospital, where we are being told about a blood cancer that we'd never had heard of. I'd heard of leukemia. We thought she'd got a leukemia of some sort, which she had, and thought she'll, be getting, she'll get better from this. You know, the leukemia rates of people getting better from it are brilliant in this country, but acute myeloid leukemia is the one that she'd got. And over the course of that week, um, the treatment worked, and everything was looking like she was at least going to get through the next few weeks and months, and I just said, I will be by your side for as long as it takes. But by the Thursday night, something began to change inside her, and this bleeding began in her brain, and, and very sadly, by quarter to six on that Friday, the 24th of November, 2017, she's gone, uh, literally in the space. Um, three days. It's okay, I'll be all right. You know, and I think that perhaps one of, um, you're going to get us all going, this is yeah. me now, you know. I try not to. Yeah, I think that um, what just sounds so cruel and just so unfair is how everything just seemed to happen so violently quick. It's not like, you know, um, there was any kind of build up and run up to this. I remember you saying um, to me earlier on, you know, it, it wasn't like this had been going on for months. You had a headache for a couple of weeks and then literally everything seemed to change just so, so violently quick. Um, so did you not even get the opportunity to say goodbye in any way? No, and it's interesting on this one because I've got to know Steve Bland quite well in recent weeks. Now, he's the husband of Rachel Bland, the Five Live presenter, who uh, had a two-year battle with breast cancer and very sadly lost that battle before Christmas. But her whole kind of... The way in which she dealt with that was amazing, that incredible podcast that she did with a couple other, which just brought the cancer conversation right to the forefront because too often we don't want to talk about death, we don't want to talk about cancer, but there's people in this room, you guys are testament to this, I am as well, who have been touched both indirectly and directly by this disease, and it is an evil within our nation, within our world, it is from the devil, it is not what God intended, and it destroys too many families. But I've got to know Steve well. And one of the conversations we've had, because he's got a boy called Freddie, who's three years old, so a lot younger than Ethan. They had two years to get their heads around what was going to eventually happen to Rachel. It doesn't make her going any less hard. But they had all the chances for those final conversations. Rachel's written this incredible book that's going to be coming out very, very soon, which is for Freddie, but is all the things she wanted to say to him before she went. And we had a chat on that podcast, You, Me, and the Big C, 
Uh, I went on it a few weeks ago, and he said to me, what would you rather have, the scenario you have with your wife or what I have with Rachel? And it's a really difficult one to answer because in lots of ways, I wish I'd had those final conversations with Gemma about how I bring Ethan up, about how she wants me to be, you know, if, if I met someone again, would she be happy about it? There's just loads of things I just wanted to ask her. But on the flip side of that, I feel a sense of relief and mercy that the one thing that would have broken her heart in two was the knowledge that Rachel had, which is, I'm never going to see my boy grow up. And the relationship Gemma had with Ethan was so you know, incredibly special. We were blessed that I did a job that allowed me to travel around the country just talking about football, but allowed Gemma the time over those eight years to pour everything into him. And in some ways, I, I do see it as a mercy that however quick and brutal it was, she never got to know because she just fell unconscious on the Thursday night and never woke up again. That I'm sure she had those moments where she feared she might not see him grow up, but she never had a doctor saying, you won't. Rachel had that. And I think if I'm being honest, I would still take what happened to us because I couldn't, I don't think I could have dealt with seeing her being told the news, you're not going to see your boy grow up because that would have absolutely snapped her in half. And in some ways, I feel that was a mercy that she didn't have that moment. And, and on one hand, you've, you've got to deal with everything that's going on for you, but then you've got this awesome eight-year-old boy, Ethan, in the mix. I mean, how, like, that's just unimaginable that you would ever, as a parent, have to break that kind of news to your eight-year-old boy. I mean, how on earth did you approach that? Well, see... As well as, as her, her dying, that was the, the worst moment I've ever had because he, he came in to see her twice that day, didn't tell him the whole story, just said, Mummy's very, very seriously ill. And he'd gone back home with uh, some, some family friends and some of our family. Um, and all the way home, I'm just going through my mind, how, on earth, what, how do you even begin this conversation? You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. You can't dress this up. There's no way of dressing this up, but I've got to tell him. I just remember a story from when, just two years ago, we went to a uh, holiday in Greece and his little monkey called Uu that he'd had as his bedfellow all those years. And you know what kids are like, they get attached to one. Even though we had an exact replica, it smells different, yeah. it feels different, <laughs> it's not Uu. Yeah. And it got scooped up in the hotel laundry and disappeared, never to be seen again. Last heard heading to a laundrette in Athens. Okay. It absolutely broke his heart. And I could remember that story, and I just thought, my days. And I remember his eyes when I said, Uu's gone. And now you're thinking, I'm going home to tell him the worst news he's ever hopefully going to hear. And it's beyond impossible how you go about doing that. And I just had to scoop him up from the lounge. I took him upstairs, and bless him, his, as he said in the weeks afterwards, when he was being very expressive about what happened, he said, my understanding, Dad, I just thought that doctors and nurses are there to get mummy better, and I thought she was going to come back at some point. And I said, well, they are. They are, but sometimes, sometimes the car is so broken, they can't fix it. Mummy's body was so broken, they couldn't fix it. And I had to say that mummy's died. And I, you, you don't, there's no way of dressing up that phrase. And, you know, he collapses onto the floor and we roll around. I just, all I could say to him was time and time again, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I'm here for you. You can't say I'm always going to be here for you because that's a lie. And the counsellor said very early, never say that. But I said, I'm here for you. And it's been a... It's been an incredible journey ever since because the way in which he's dealt with it. You know, one, one area, I was thinking about this on the way up, and I sometimes take this for granted. You know, when you're looking for shards of light in what feels like the darkest experience you're going for, when you are searching for the light, you are searching for God somewhere in this mess and this bomb that's... I describe it, that night when I told him, it felt like a tsunami hit our house. Everything that you planned for, everything that felt in inverted commas certain, everything you hoped for, was gone in a moment. His world collapsed. My world had collapsed. For friends and family, it felt like theirs had in a smaller kind of way. Everything changed on that night. Absolutely everything. But you know what? From that night to tonight, and I pray that tonight will be the same, you know, his best friend Louis was so disturbed. Understandably, he's just seen his best mate's mum go in less than a week. He, he, had, a, he had to have counselling because he couldn't sleep anymore. He slept in between his mum and dad for four months. Ethan has never... Mr. Night's Sleep. He's never woken up in a cold sweat. He's never woken up with a nightmare. And when you're looking for the way in which God does reach out to you in a time like this, I look at my boy, I look at those nights, and say, that is not a coincidence that he slept that well. He should not be sleeping like that. 
But God has put his hand on that boy in an incredible way. And so when I'm searching for meaning, when I'm searching for hope, when I'm searching for God in a dark, dark place, often, so often I look at him and go, it's right there. He is right there in that boy's life. I can't see it always, but when I think about it, I can see God. I think that for me, that's perhaps what is most inspiration, even inspirational, even just hearing you speak now in the way that you do, because it's so clear that you've been able to really like grapple with some of life's most difficult questions and yet still hold on to your faith. And I'm looking forward to being able to ask you more about that, um, you know, as we go on. But like, how, how do you cope when... Gemma's passed, you've broke this news to Ethan and he's now obviously feels like he's had his world turned upside down. But then life not gets going, I don't mean it as in like life moves on, but how do you approach those first couple of weeks of just feeling and sensing like now everything has changed and you now have to cope with everything that's just happened? How, how have you done that? Well, mainly in those first weeks because we had this incredible bubble of support around us from amazing friends and amazing family. Uh, the, the door was like a revolving door. I'd set up at our church in Reading a men's group. I called them the Bacon Boys because we'd meet on a Friday morning for breakfast. We'd have a bit of a chat. Someone would sometimes do a Bible study. We'd have a pray and pret-a-manger and then go to work. And I'd set it up so that when guys at our church went through difficult times, rather than doing what I did when the first round of IVF that we had to try and have a brother or sister even failed, and I went into quite a dark place, I did that classic bloke thing. I closed down, and over time I began to withdraw from church life. And I'd seen too many, too many other men doing exactly the same thing. When troubles in life hit, they begin to withdraw. They go to a place of isolationism, and that is when the devil really begins to hit you very hard. And I wanted to set up a group where we try and catch these guys. We talk about stuff. We're open and honest. I didn't know as I did it that the guy who was going to be the biggest first recipient of this was going to be me. But our front door was like a revolving door. These guys kept coming around. My family and my friends were going, who are these guys? They're like, like sort of guardian angels are coming around. They'd sit with me. They'd sometimes pray with me. Sometimes they'd just cry with me. So we had that amazing network of support from us. Our church were dropping meals around. We felt just carried through those first few weeks. But the hardest thing to deal with is I heard this phrase used a lot when I was talking to people who knew what the passage and the, and the journey of grief can be like. And it is different from person to person, but they kept saying, you're going to experience this horrible parallel universe. And that is this, around you, life carries on as normal. I remember on the night we came back from Gemma dying, we were on our way back to, get Ethan, to tell Ethan, and I hadn't eaten all day. And we stopped off at McDonald's, and uh, I managed to eat one burger. But as we walked in there, here was life as it always has been and always will be. The sights and sounds of kids running around playing on those stupid iPads and now putting McDonald's. Why have they done that? But you can hear the, the chip fire crackling and, and people ordering their food and the chitter chatter of a Friday night in a fast food restaurant. And I'm going, my world has just stopped. And I, at one point, I nearly screamed out in front of the whole restaurant, What is your problem? But of course, that's the painful reality you have to deal with is that whether you're a king or a queen, a famous rock star or film star, yes. People will mourn that person's passing, but the world will carry on spinning. And it is really hard to deal with because everything does carry on. For even your friends and family who are supporting you, life carries on. There are kids still to feed. There are mortgages still to be paid. And it is a really painful place because everything feels like it's stopped. The world feels unfair and unjust, and you have to deal with the fact that all around you is carrying on. And only a week later, Ethan's back at school because the counselor said, he needs to go back soon because if he doesn't, he's just going to feel that everything he knew his life before is disappearing. And I remember standing at the school gate going, I can't deal with the chitter-chatter of mums and dads just exchanging rubbish banter in the playground. I can deal with it now. I couldn't deal with it then. And it was just a, I just describe it as just this raging sea of emotions. One minute, you're crying your eyes out. The next minute, you're angry. The next minute, you are frustrated because you can't you can't remember anything anymore because your brain just becomes so consumed with worries and anxieties. You can't think straight anymore. I, my friends would describe those first few weeks and they said, what were you like in that period of this script? You were an absolute mess. And there were days in which we didn't know how to help you anymore, how we'd get you through that day. And all the time, you've got an eight-year-old boy who still needed his dad, as well as having these amazing people around. So it's, I'm not going to lie, people in this room, I no doubt, have been through something similar. Maybe not in quite this way, but know what it's like to lose someone. Your world for a time feels like it just collapses. 
And I think anger is a huge issue because you're so, so angry. I know, you know, we experienced our own expression of anger, but you don't exactly know who you're angry at. You're just angry over the situation. You said something before, you know, it doesn't really matter what genre of life you're from. We all come into the world the same way and we all are going to exit the world the same way. And, um, and, and none of us know when that's going to be. Um, you know, whether it's going to be tomorrow in 10 years and 20 years, we don't know. We don't get that privilege of knowing. And, um, but in, in all of the anger and the turmoil and the upset, I know that as um, a Christian, the Bible teaches us that God, the Spirit of God, is able to give us peace in our world that surpasses all understanding. It's like in the most diverse of situations when you should not be feeling a sense of calm and peace that the Spirit of God is able to deposit that. And I know that you and I have had some conversation. Could you share that, that story with us just about when you felt the presence of God become real to you? Yeah, that, I mean, that verse, the peace of God, the pastor's all understanding, I'd heard it. So, I grew up, I grew up, my dad was a vicar, grew up in the church, I grew up with um, uh, a knowledge and an idea of God from a very young age, and then I worked it out for myself, and, and, and I've had a faith ever since. It's not always been easy, but I've always kept my faith, whatever happened, I'm still managing to cling on even now. But that, that verse, the peace of God that passes all understanding, we so often hear it in church, it's kind of bandied around. You think, well, what does, actually, what does that mean? Uh, to be honest, until this happened, I really didn't get it. I thought it's kind of that peace that's a, a nice place to be or just a, a, a nice state of being and what's this understanding bit all about? It's what you're hinting at. It is God's peace coming and descending upon you in the most unlikely of places. And even on that Friday, after the doctor had said she's got hours to go, I had this bizarre sense of peace. Yes, I was scared. Yes, I was worried. Yes, my stomach was a twisted mess of knots. But I was able to have a calm and a peace throughout that day that to this day I cannot explain. And there was an incredible thing that actually happened on the day we had Gemma's celebration. Didn't want to call it a funeral, hate that word. And actually we did want to celebrate her life. Yes, it was cut short, but there was still so much to celebrate about the woman that she was. But later in that day, we have to go to the criminal. We had the wake-offs. I, I hate that word, but I haven't been able to find another word for it. But anyway, we gathered at the, a nice restaurant, and uh, I wouldn't say it was a nice time for me, but everyone else had a, you know, it was nice catching up with friends and stuff. And then we go to the crematorium, and we took the last slot because it means there was no pressure on the service in the morning from up undertakers looking at their watch saying, you're going to miss your slot. And we arrived there, and it's everything you could ever expect and worse. It was, it was depressing. It felt devoid of life, which some people might say, well, it's a crematorium. It is devoid of life. But as a Christian, it just felt devoid of anything at all hopeful. As we went into the room, it was just cold and dark and gloomy. But as Gemma's hearse arrived, we were just stood outside, and really the emotions of the day hit me for the first time. And I collapsed. I shouted this blood-curdling, and I don't remember doing this. It's only a friend who told me a blood-curdling no across the cemetery as, as the hearse arrived. And I collapsed on the floor, and this kind of band of friends and family just literally picked me up out of the gravel. And I remember a group of guys just gathering around me, laying their hands on my shoulders, just praying, just please now, God, may your peace descend. Give this man strength as we go into that place. And we went into that room, and this incredible peace descended that was so powerful that later on that evening, some friends of ours were back at our house, and a friend of ours called Nicola, who's married to my best mate, Graham, she has no faith whatsoever. She said, I stood there, and we sang this song. It was just playing out of the speakers, but a worship song. She said, I'm, I felt this peace I've never, ever felt before. I can't explain it. There's a guy standing next to me singing. I know he's got a terrible voice, and yet he sounded like angelic. The whole thing sounded angelic. I was able to smile as we started to pray for Gemma and we started to pray for each other in that room. And at one point, as it finishes, I remember people just started to go up to the coffin and lay, you know, signs of the cross. We used to call each other Dahl and I just thought, do you know what, I want to get out of here. Not in a horrible way, I just thought it's time to leave. And I just said to everyone, I'm sorry to break crematorium decorum, but she is not here, she's in heaven, I'm leaving. And I just said, goodbye Dahl. And at that point, when I look back on it, I think that peace should not have been possible. That should not be possible in that room with what's happened. And yet, for that 15 minutes, God's peace came into that room, into that dark, gloomy, hopeless room, and filled it with his extraordinary hope. And when I look back on the year, those are the moments where I go, you know what? 
when he has felt distant, at times he was actually very present. In the, um, in the depths of your darkest hours, did you ever make a conscious decision that throughout this you were going to run towards God? Because I know for sure that the biggest temptation for those of us that say we follow Christ is that when crisis happens, when tragedy happens, you know, just the same as everybody else, often we want to kick back and run away from God. But it, listening to you now, it's almost like you've been able to um, have your faith in God remain strong. But were there any moments where actually you were just like, God, like me and you are done. You've let me down. This, this has not worked out how... I was expecting, like, this is it. I'm running away rather than running to. I think I was close to having a moment or two like that, but I never truly let go. Um, I remember coming out of the hospital that, that you know, I, I did pray, I think, with the most faith I've ever prayed for anything. When we went back into the room and the doctor has said she's got multiple bleeds on her brain and she's not going to get better and she's got hours, I, I didn't take my hand off her head for three hours, and I, I didn't even notice the nurse. You were praying for her for three yeah, hours? out loud, right. in that room, saying, in the name of Jesus, I pray that in that same way that I've read the stories of you healing in the Bible, and I've actually seen it and heard about it in churches across the land and across the world, stop this bleeding, do not leave my boy without a mum. Do not, please God. You know, at one point, my vicar said, you actually, and I, he said, looking back on it, we knew at the time, you can't bargain with God. I, I literally, I don't remember doing this, but I knelt on the floor and in front of everybody just put my hands up and said, God, I will travel the world proclaiming your name. I will give up my job. I'll give up everything I have if you make my wife better. But of course, we can't bargain with God. But I had the most incredible faith that day that he was going to intervene and then he doesn't. And as we left the hospital later that evening, everything comes flooding out. And my vicar was with me and he said it was the most blood-curdling, loudest shout he's ever heard. But I just started bellowing at God. Why? Why have you done this? Why have you let my boy now grow up without a mum? Why have you taken her at half time in life? What are you about? I just shouted and shouted and shouted at God. But you know, as time went on, I came to realize that God did not ordain on that day in November to take Gemma out. We live in a broken world. And there is a massive question I still have in my head, why those prayers went unanswered. But ultimately, I don't think I'm ever probably going to know the answer to that. Because people often say to me, well, everything will make sense in heaven. Well, it might do. But actually, I think when we get there, it's going to be so glorious, so perfect, so amazing that all of the angst and the worries and the questions we have in life here on earth are going to dissipate. And actually, it won't matter and everything will make sense. But where I'm at in life now, it does matter. I want to know why God didn't intervene that day. But I think what, what this experience has given me is just a kind of different understanding, or maybe not different, but a, a real understanding of how... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit actually work because God the Father is beyond big enough and powerful enough and amazing enough that he can take me ranting at him on the, on the, on the pavement as I collapsed to the pavement outside that hospital. I regularly would go to the end of our garden in the early weeks. We live on a beautiful farm estate in Reading, and we're right by the River Thames. I'd go down in the early morning. My sleep was at the worst, and I'd probably wake all the neighbors up just ranting at God. Why? It wasn't so much you did this, but why did you let it happen? That's what my big question was to God. And God is big enough to take that. Jesus shouted at his father on the cross. Why have you, where have you gone, God? Where are you, Father, right now? But, you know, God the Son is, 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 the, is the figure, the man who got alongside me. There was one Saturday morning. It was the second Saturday after she went. And I just woken up very early and just was an, an absolute mess. And I went... Once again, down to the end of the garden, I'm just in a pair of Wellington boots and a dressing gown. It must have been a strange sight for the neighbours. And I shouted at God again, and then I just sat on this tree right on the banks of the River Thames, and I just wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I just said, I cannot do this anymore. I can't. I can't cope with this. It's too much. My heart's too broken, and I don't think I could hold on to my faith anymore. And for a brief moment, I wanted to roll into that river. I actually wanted to end it, which is something that a lot of bereaved people will experience at one time or another. But two things happened in that moment. One is the image of Ethan came right into my head, and I knew that for the sake of that boy, he'd lost his mum. He did not now need him losing his dad as well. But I felt this real strong sense of this presence alongside me, and it felt like the figure of Jesus was sat there. He wasn't saying anything, but he was weeping tears with me. 
because that is the Jesus figure that came down to earth and he wept alongside those who mourned. He got alongside those who were in pain. He didn't need to say anything at that point, but I felt him so tangibly close to me that in the end I go, I know he's not left my side. I know he's gone quiet, but he's still here somewhere. And I got back to my feet and I walked slowly back to the house and tried to keep on finding life again. And God, the Holy Spirit, as I've talked about, is the, is the spirit that in the most ridiculous situations brought an incredible peace where actually chaos should have reigned. That's, that's just, that's so, that's so helpful and it's so inspiring. And I think also, you know, for when we do have to face grief and when we do have some of the most challenging um, circumstances come up in our life, that blindside is that we don't expect us. When you have a faith in Christ, you have an anchor for your hope and you have somewhere to just to go and somewhere to offload to and then there's just there's an allowance for God to just deposit something that is not of this earth that is just something so supernatural by his spirit that only he could do um, and I know that you must have a completely different slant on life now than than prior to to this event like you were saying about going into McDonald's and you just it's like you're on the outside and you're looking at the world ticking over. And um, what advice, I think everybody in here, we all take it for granted that we're going to go to bed and we're going to wake up tomorrow. Every one of us, we take life for granted. What advice could you give to us how we could treat each gift as a de- uh, each day as a gift and also to have value on others? Because as human beings, as people, we bicker, we fall out, we say unkind words, we say unnecessary stuff, we hold grudges, and life is short, right? What advice could you give to us and how we could better our lives by treating each day as a gift and treating each person with value? Do you know what? It's, I feel a sense of sadness that it's taken something like this for me to truly understand that a life is too short. We hear that phrase banded around so often, but we kind of just take it as one of those phrases. And then something like this happens, you realize actually, no, life is really too short. And as we get older, even if we live, live a long and full life, time just, just goes quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, do you know what? Going through this, there, there's something about life that just smells different. It gives you a perspective. It gives you an understanding on life. I, you know, some people talk about when you go through something like this, you know, it's just, you know, it gives you a different sense of perspective. It feels like in, in for what's happened to me, like, I've not just had the lens on my life change. I've had the camera body change. Everything is different about life now. And actually, every day that we have is a gift. But you know, in the busyness of life, with the stresses and the strains, and the anxieties and everything that we deal with, whether it's worries about our career, it's worries about a child or a teenager we're bringing up. We get so consumed by what's ahead of us all the time that we actually can't see anymore what's actually around us. And life for me now does smell different. And what I just try and encourage people to do is to realize that nothing that we have we should ever take for granted. You know, what I found out going through this is that just how much of my life was caught up and intertwined with Gemma's. You know, we'd been married for 12 and a half years. We'd been together for 16. And when she suddenly disappeared, you realized how much we lent on each other, how much actually when we didn't appreciate it, we needed each other. How many nights I sat there on the opposite sofa, farting, sorry, farting around with my phone while she was looking at the I'm mail online. I'm just going to say it like it is. Like, you know, how it is in my house. And actually... Do you know what I said? The, the one, the one, I said quite a few things, but I said this when I, when I, I gave the, I hate the word eulogy, talk, whatever. Well, listen, when I got up and spoke about Gemma at her celebration, I said this line, and it seemed to resonate with a lot of people, particularly some of my colleagues from Sky, because sometimes we need to be reminded of this. You know, I said that I would give up everything I have. I'd give up my job. I'd give up my house. I'd give up my future aspirations. I wouldn't give up my boy, but I'd give all of that up just for one more hour with Gemma. And I would have done. Just for one more hour, I'd have 
said goodbye to all of that because I'd now realized I'd taken all of this for granted. I thought, you see, the reason why we take these things for granted in life is because we think they're going to keep on happening for a lot longer. And I pray in the name of Jesus for you guys that that is your experience of life, that you've got many more years, if you're married, of enjoying life together. If you're not married, you're craving that partnership, that one day that happens to you and you enjoy many years together. But sadly for some of you, that is not going to happen. So rinse out what you have with life. It is not always easy. Give thanks to God when you get up in the morning that I have another day. Because Gemma missed out. The average life expectancy of a woman in this country is 82.9 years. She died at the age of 40. She's missed out on half of her life. She's not going to see her boy grow up. Ethan's not going to be there to have his mum alongside us. But what I'm so thankful for is that, my goodness me, she rinsed out those eight years with him. Yes, we had our difficulties as a married couple in terms of fertility issues and all those kind of things. But I feel there are still too many things I did take for granted. Life is a precious, precious gift. God grants us each day. He grants us each day. And try as much as you can to give thanks for that, to rinse it out. Don't wait until, and I pray it doesn't, but don't wait until something like this happens to finally get how amazing life is. And actually, in lots of ways, how incredibly blessed we are and privileged we are. And don't take anything for granted. So good. Even the fact that you're talking like this in such an open and honest and sincerely authentic way is so inspirational to me because, hey, let's call a spade a spade. Us boys, we're terrible at dealing with stuff like this. We're terrible at talking um, about this kind of stuff. And even, as I said in jest, but it was true, it was like I'd follow you on the gram and then I'd unfollow you because it was like, I, I don't even know whether I want to be that open to, to kind of listening to what you've got to say on this stuff. And it was clearly just me wanting to build barriers. But, but clearly you have found a way of being honest and open and in a very eloquent way too about talking about some of the things that are complex and moving towards every single one of us gathered in church, but, but to us boys, to the men, what would you say about the benefits that you have found about being willing to just open up and talk about the hurt, the pain, and your journey, as opposed to what we would typically always do, which is just stay quiet and bury our heads in the sand and let's just pretend nothing's ever happened. How, how has it benefited you from simply making that decision to be open and talk about that? Well, I think part of the questions I asked myself as the kind of initial kind of emotional maelstrom of those first few weeks began to die down a little bit and you began to start looking out and thinking, well, what is life going to look like now? How do I reshape it again? How do I build a new life with Ethan? Um, is that I just wanted to make some kind of sense out of the car crash of that day in November, to bring something out of the ashes of what had happened and try and find a reason to live again, but actually to try and bring something out of this that means Gemma's death wasn't in vain. Uh, and I just decided very early on, because I was, I was actually being very scattergun on social media. I think in the early days I perhaps overshared a little bit. But I decided to start writing a blog um, just to put my feelings down in writing, a grief shared. And I remember one in particular because I'd, I, I was battling with this depression, anxiety, as Gemma gets ill and then dies. And thankfully, you know, all of that kind of dissipated for that week. And it came back in the form of panic attacks, but it's not come back since. But I decided to write about it one day just to say that this was my secret battle because it did feel like a secret battle. In the world of football, where it's a very macho environment, it's, it's hard to kind of acknowledge you're feeling like this. I remember the day I had a panic attack at Old Trafford, half an hour before going on air, I had to take myself out of the studio. Graham Souness, Jamie Redknapp sat there. It was nothing about them, but I thought, I can't be like this. I'm about to have a panic attack. I went to the disabled loo across the bar from the studio and just broke down in tears in the loo. The only person that got me through, or two people got me through that, were Gemma and the prayer she said for me to get back on my feet and go back to the studio. And somehow we got on air and everything was okay. But I thought I'd got nowhere to go with that. I felt I, felt I couldn't tell anybody. I felt I couldn't be honest with my bosses. And then I decided to write this blog on this secret battle, I called it. And I wanted to do it because I just thought there's too many guys, actually there's women out there as well, who don't feel they can ever vocalize this. They don't feel that they can open up to actually how they're actually feeling. They battle on and it's such a lonely and isolating place to be as it is without actually taking yourself away from people by not being open about how you're feeling. And I wrote this blog. And you know what, within five minutes of publishing it, 
the first comment I see on Twitter, I can't remember his name, but it came back to me from a guy and he said, just, I want to say to you, thank you so much for writing this. You've just saved my life. Now, I don't know what he was about to do, but I, I can pretty confidently predict he was in a very, very, very dark place. And when I read that and then read the subsequent comments and people saying thank you for vocalizing something that people find so hard to talk about. You know, I'm not the knight in shining hour for mental health. I'm not. But I just wanted to say, guys, particularly guys, don't bury your heads in the sand on this. Don't zip your mouth shut. Talk about it, because as you begin to talk about it, it's like a soothing balm that begins to cover you. It's not going to sort everything out, but it is like opening the tap. And if you don't, the pressure builds up, and the pressure builds up until it explodes. And for some people, particularly guys, it explodes in a fatal and desperate way. The suicide rate amongst men in this country is way too high, because too many guys don't feel they've got a way of expressing themselves. And that's what that guys group is about at church, not necessarily depression, anxiety, but just saying, guys... Let's talk about life, talk about fears, talk about anxieties, talk about what you're struggling with in your relationships or at work. Because if you don't talk about them, they bottle up and they will come out at some point. That's the same with grief. If you bottle grief up, if you don't talk about it, it doesn't mean it need to be said on social media. But if you don't express it, at some point it will come out. And if you bottle it up for too long, it's like a fizzy bottle of coke. You keep shaking it and one day it will explode. And I just felt early on with grief, and mental health is just to take that top off and slowly let it out. If that helps people, then I see something again of God in that. I know, I know for me, for sure, I'm really grateful and appreciative for you being willing to be as open as you have been. I've been inspired by the way in which you've handled um, you know, everything. Uh, I find it incredible. I really do. Um, can I ask you a really practical question just about like, you know, when you've gone through um, loss and you, you've kind of like, you've been separated from Gemma whom you've been married to for 12 and a half years. I could imagine that a lot of people don't necessarily know how to be around you, what to say, what not to say. I'm just wondering, you know, like for us as a church, we're going to encounter um, grief, hurting people all around us. Um, what would you, what would you tell us to say and not to say? What's helpful and what's hurtful in those moments when you've experienced loss and pain like you have? The most common comment I got there was people reacting to the post I put on Facebook, just letting friends know what had happened, or whether it was via cards, was there are no words. And actually, there's an awful lot of words. Our problem is, as a society, and actually this goes for Christians as well as non-Christians, because something like this really does challenge your faith. It challenges what we think about God and some of the certainties we thought were there suddenly feel like they're crumbling. And too often, we don't know how to vocalize what we want to say or what we're feeling. We cannot find the right words. So we end up saying nothing and saying there are no words. But for someone going through that, it feels almost like it's not being acknowledged. And it, it makes you feel a little bit isolated and alone. I, I think with people going through grief, you know, there are words, but sometimes actually if you can't find them, there is great power in being present. And that's what I appreciated from those guys who came around for our friends and family. Sometimes there was nothing to say. What do you say when this has happened? You can't say anything that's going to make it better. You know, trite things like, well, Gemma's in heaven now. She's out of pain. They were like someone whacking me around the face because my response to that was, yeah, hallelujah, that's the long term hope that I have is that one day I and Ethan will see mum again but in the here and now she should be here she shouldn't be in heaven what use is Gemma to me and to Ethan in particular in heaven things like that really great here we've got to be careful sometimes of the language you use but there is power in being present sometimes just getting alongside them and just putting a hand on their shoulder praying in our head or praying out loud crying with them there is power in being present but there's also a lot of isolationism and loneliness when people decide it's too much. You know, the one guy that I just appreciated so much what he did. You know, I, when I was on Blue Peter, my sort of right-hand man, my kind of best mate on there was Matt Baker. And it was the Monday morning uh, after Gemma went. So we're, we're just over 48 hours after that. You know, it takes a brave person to get alongside someone who's just gone through that kind of bereavement, traumatic grief, which it was. And I was in the lounge, I can't remember what I was thinking or feeling at the time. Ethan was playing with his cousin on the PlayStation. And I'm just sort of sat in my dressing gown, still in this daze that had been 
kind of my just being for the last two days, just in a total day's numb, not really fully appreciating what on earth has just gone on. I hear this County Durham accent in the hallway. I'd heard a knock on the door, and I thought, I recognize that voice. And there was Matt standing in the doorway. And I just got up and gave him the biggest hug, and he spent a couple of hours with me. And it meant everything, because that's a really brave thing to do. Because Matt didn't know what he was going to find. He didn't know whether there was going to be any fit state to want to see him. I might have shouted at him, go away. But actually, it meant everything, because someone was actually having the courage to be present. And he didn't come around with any smart answers. I don't know what kind of Matt's faith is. He just came and got alongside. In the same way that Jesus got alongside people, I just say, if you're supporting the bereaved, get alongside them. It is scary because the problem with something like this is it holds a mirror up to each and every one of us. And it is a stark, in, in Gemma's case in particular because it was so rapid, it's a stark and painful reminder that life is fragile. And it can suddenly be brutally interrupted. And for a lot of us, we don't want to go there. And so sometimes it's easier to stick our fingers in our ear and hum loudly. And I found that a little bit as time has gone on, people have kind of withdrawn a little bit. Because it is painful to be around us. And it is a reminder of the fragility of life. But I'd say if you're supporting the bereaved long term, don't leave them. Don't withdraw from them. If sometimes it's just a practical thing. You know, when we were coming back from the weekend, it was Gemma's anniversary, the, the November day, the first anniversary of her passing. And, and my neighbours, Emma and Rich, are just brilliant. He's such a nutter, Rich, that he actually, because their house backs onto ours, so we're adjoined to the house. And he actually offered in the early days, he said, Sire, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to knock a hole in the wall and not have a hatch. So anytime you're free and loading, you can just open the hatch and say hello, and we can pass meals through and stuff. I said, Rich, look, I really appreciate that, but I, it's, a, it's a little bit too much. But to this day, he said, anytime you want me to knock the hole in the wall, I'll still do it. But they've been amazing. They don't have a faith. And yet every single day, nearly every single day, Ebba pops around, says, how are you doing? Anything I can do. As we were traveling back from the first anniversary, I knew we were going back to a cold, dark house. It had been a hard weekend, but also a nice weekend in which we shared memories and, and laughed about Gemma and cried about her as well. But I know I'm going back to that house that's so full of poignant reminders of the woman who's no longer there. It's going to be dark. It's going to be a bit cold. It's a dark November night. I'm dreading it. Absolutely dreading it. And Emma just sends me a text and says, can we light a fire for you? So that when you get back, the house is warm and it's lit up. A simple thing made that night bearable because they get home and the house is lit up. It's not dark. We walk in, you're hit by a wall of warmth and not coldness. And a simple act of love and kindness like that, which is just lighting a fire for someone going through bereavement and grief, can be so, so big. Sometimes we feel we just need to do the big stuff. You are almost certainly not going to have the answers. If something like this happens to one of you, your friends will not have the answer. They won't. But what they can do is show love and show kindness and be practical. And those are the kind of things, as I look back on the last year, moments like that are the moments where I look back on and say, not only was that incredibly kind, but actually when you're searching for those shards of light in a dark, dark place, you go, actually, that is where God was appointing people. God works through people. And even through my neighbors who don't really have a faith, he's just using people to keep reminding you that even in those times when you feel that God has disappeared, he actually never for one single moment left your side. I guess just one last closing question for you, Simon. Do you still really believe that God is still good when life really isn't? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I have to believe that, and I want to believe it, because I believe it is true. And I know that this, what happened to Gemma, what has no doubt happened to various people in this room, is not the way God intended it to be. Cancer is not what he designed for this world. It's not the way it's meant to be. And just because tragedy happens, just because life doesn't work out in the way you expected and hoped it would, does not equal God not being good. I had my times where I questioned whether he was, whether I questioned whether he really cared about me and whether he really was there for me. But you know what? I've seen so much of him in the life of my boy. I've seen it so often. You know, some of the things that he said to me as an eight-year-old have just been incredible. And it's been a reminder that even though this path for him is so incredibly hard, he's got a godly wisdom about him. 
you know, that weekend when we went to North Norfolk, one of Gemma's favourite places, a place called Blakeney on the North Norfolk coast, to mark that weekend, to go away with her family and, and see mine as well. Um, the Friday night we arrived at this beautiful house that someone had lent us very kindly for the weekend. And I was just dumping my bag in my room. Ethan wanted to sleep in another room so his cousin Thomas could be by, beside him. And he came, I came out of the room and he was waiting for me. Uh, and he said, Daddy, can I have a quick word? I said, yeah, yeah, of course you can. So we just sort of sat on the staircase. Uh, and he said, Daddy, can I say something? I said, yeah, of course you can. He said, I just want you to know, Daddy, I, I know that this weekend's going to be really, really hard. I said, oh, I know it is going to be hard. He said, I just want you to know that any time you're feeling upset, any time you find it too hard, he said, just come and find me and I'll give you a big hug. And that, yeah, that is the love of an eight-year-old. But actually, that is God in that as well. And when I had those times where I've searched for God and wondered where enough he's gone, I look into his eyes and go, God is right in this boy. He is right in this boy because that godly love that Gemma poured into him, now, even though he is traveling the worst journey any child can ever be asked to travel, he still displays the love and the grace and the kindness and the patience that his mum had. But that, for Gemma, came from her amazing relationship with God. And so when the darkness closes in, I still see shards of light and the biggest beacon of light in him. What an inspiration, you know, when I hear you being able to say that, it just, it gives me hope, it really does. Um, you know, we as your new friends, your new Scouse friends, uh, we, we really do wish you and Ethan every blessing for the future. Um, we really uh, want you to know that I know that Emma and I and a bunch of people here will be, will be praying for you guys as a family. We really appreciate um, everything that you've been willing to share and talk to us about. We find your openness inspirational. I do for sure. I feel like I've learned so much. And um, thank you so much for letting me, letting us um, just lean into your world a little bit and glean some of the knowledge and information um, that you're willing to share. I wish that um, you hadn't been through everything that you have. I wish, you know, as a pastor sometimes, I, I feel like I had a button that I could just switch off for people when they're going through stuff and just make it all better. But, but I found that just because you follow Christ, as you clearly have too, that it doesn't mean that life is perfect. But it is so inspirational to listen to your story and in and amongst the heartbreak and the pain and the ache and the tension to find that there is just this seed of faith that's in the depths of your soul that says, God, I'm still going to trust you even though um, of everything that's gone on in my world. So on behalf of Emma and I and all the team, we want to say a huge thank you to, to yourself and to Ethan for coming to Liverpool. So, hey, ladies and gentlemen, can we give it up? Mr. Simon Thomas. Thank you.